If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 34. We're going to finish the rest of this psalm. We dug into it last week, and man, it was lonely without you here last Sunday, but I'm glad that you're back. I hope that you got to see that sermon online or maybe at 945 worship, but today, let's dig in. Let me give you a little bit of review, especially for those that may have missed it. This psalm comes out of a unique season in David's life. Uh, David has gone through a terrible time. It's been a great time up until this point. He's had great success and he's had great victories. And I've learned in life that those can be sometimes the most dangerous times in our life. That when we're experiencing everything going our way, there's a tendency for us to find our way moving away from God or find ourselves in the wrong place. This apparently was starting to happen for David. David is at the top of the line in his life at this point. He has defeated Goliath, the giant. He has become legendary in his own time. Everybody is talking and even singing about David. They're they're singing the song that Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. He was famous. He had victory after victory after victory. He's growing into a man after God's own heart. But now he's coming to a point in his life that he has to return to where he first started as a little shepherd boy. A life of total dependence on his God and a humbled life instead of this ego that was quickly developing. I think the Lord was humbling David and bringing him back to his roots and experiencing that first love that he had with his God. It could be that maybe God is doing that in your life right now. That you have experienced so many good days that you have forgotten to make every day about God and making them God days. That we can just go through the motions and show up for church on Sunday, but not show up Monday through Saturday in our walk with our holy God. He is growing in this understanding, and unfortunately, he was in a season of his life where he leaned on his own understanding, where he was trying to continue to be successful by doing what seemed right in his own eyes. He's come to a point now where he's at war, and he's at war with the king of Israel. Saul hates his guts and wants him dead. He is a threat because King Saul knows God has picked David to take over that throne, and he doesn't want to give up the power. And so he's put out an edict for David. Anybody who can get him any way, he wants him to be a dead man. David is running for his life. He is in a troubled day, even though everything's been going great. And in these struggles, he tries to dig himself out of it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourself uh, in these new challenges of life and, and you try to fix it on your own, you try to wrestle through it, you try to find your way out and you find that you're in a bigger mess than ever before? David has gone running for his life. He decided, leaning on his own understanding, that the best place I could possibly go on this planet where the king cannot touch me is Gath, the land of Gath. Now, why Gath? Well, Gath was the land of the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. Gath was the home region of Goliath, the giant he has killed, and he knows that that's the last place on the planet Saul will ever look for him. So he goes running to the most dangerous place on the planet, leaning on his own understanding. We'll all find the same lesson that David learned, that when we lean on our own understanding and we try to do what seems right in our own eyes, we get in a bigger mess. David then fakes like he's mentally ill so that nobody will come around him. Nobody will mess with him in this land. He's doing all these tricks and all this cleverness trying to save his life rather than what he used to do, which was run to the God of his life. The Lord is humbling him, and the Lord is reminding him of who he is and who David is. 
God's reminding him of his love and how he can return back if he will just simply let God be the Lord of his battles. So easy to wake up like David, though, and say, you know, I got this. Think about it. David had killed a lion. David had killed a bear. David showed up on a battlefield where a whole army of Israel was afraid of this giant, and a little shepherd boy stepped up and took out Goliath. I've killed the lion. I've killed the bear. I've killed Goliath. A prophet has come and said, God has said that I'm the next king. God handpicked me to be the king of his people. I'm somebody special. It's very easy to start just walking this walk in our own strength, in our own understanding, and think, I got this. But the Lord was reminding David of reality. Look at verse 6 again, Psalm 34, verse 6. So David finally, as he goes through this terrible time of hiding from the king and being in the wilderness and being all alone and realizing I have nothing, I have no resources, I really am not the king that I think I am, but I can become the king he wants me to be. He declares, this poor man cried out to the Lord. That speaks of a spiritual poverty. Yes, he had no resources, he had no weapons, he had no army, he had no kingdom. But in that, he also realized that without his God, he also was nothing. He said, in my spiritual poverty, I cried out to God. He heard me, and he saved me out of all of my troubles. Today, I would tell you this. If you would humble yourself in that way, if you would come to that point of your realization, man, without God, I have nothing. Oh, I have a great family. I have a great job. I have a great church. Can everybody say amen? Come on now. And all these things that we can be thankful for and yet realize, apart from God, we have nothing. Verse 8. So taste and see that God is good, the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Instead of him trying to run to Gath, instead of him trying to take up Goliath's sword, instead of him trying to defend himself, he finally surrenders to God once again. God, you're the same God that gave me victory on the field with Goliath. You're the same God that can give me victory against Saul. He returned back to letting the Lord be his refuge. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. Do you find yourself today struggling and just wanting something else? If I just had this, if, if this was just better in my life, if, if I just could experience this, if, if you have an if in your life, you're in the wrong place. David said, when you learn to fear the Lord, when you learn to understand what that relationship with God is, you will not want now, this fear of the Lord is what I want to dig in on today because there's a misunderstanding about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not being scared of God, scared that he's going to strike you with a lightning bolt if you step out of bounds, that God is against you and just waiting for you to trip up. That's fear, uh, worldly fear. That's fear of the enemy, that, uh, the enemy that brings fear in that way. But a fear of the Lord is something completely different. It is having a holy awe a holy fear of God, a reverence and an awe. It's something that we have forgotten and something we have distanced ourselves from. Look at verse 10. That fear of the Lord, that awe comes from a daily encounter with God. And when we quit encountering God on a daily basis, when we quit going one-on-one -on -one with God, we start to dry up and we start to hunger for other things and we start to eat and taste of the things of this world. Verse 10. He reminds me, even young lions lack and suffer. They also remain hungry. 
And even though they're young and even though they're ferocious and even though they're the kings of the jungle, they still hunger. But those who seek the Lord, those who out of that awe and that reverence for God continually daily pursue him, encountering God on a daily basis, seeking him, shall not be in want of any good thing. Our wanting, our wanting that comes out of our starving hearts comes from a hunger that is from this world. I've told you many times before, it's like eating at a Chinese buffet. You line up and it looks great and you chow down and you can eat all you can eat and you will eat until you get sick to the gills. And it won't be an hour later that you're hungry again. It's a weird, strange thing. The same is true as we eat from this world instead of the one who created the world. Instead of tasting of God, we taste of our flesh and our desires and all the stuff that's out there. And we think that, man, if I just get one more bite... If I could just eat more of that. And I want you to know, sin tastes good. The Bible says it's pleasurable for a season. And that first bite gets you, and you just think, man, if I could just get more, if I could just get more. And that's the issue of addiction. And that's the issue of the hunger that comes from this world. But, but here we find David saying that if you would eat and taste the Lord, if you would find your daily sustenance in him, you'll be wanting for nothing. Verse 11, go down to verse 11. So come, you children, and listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David, as he's come through all this experience, he had to be taught and he had to be reminded by God what it means to be in a relationship with the Lord, to find refuge in him and to find everything you need in the Lord your God, the shepherd of your life. That's why in Psalm 23, David said, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. I have nothing outside of God that I need. Here he says, so let me teach you what God has taught me. And what was the lesson he had to learn? He had to learn what it meant to fear the Lord, to fear the Lord. Well, how would you define fearing the Lord? What does that mean to you? David here is inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's been taught to now become our teacher we, too, to learn this lesson, have to go through what David had to go through. We have to be humbled. We have to be reminded it isn't about us, but it is about him, that he is God and we are not. And come to that realization that this poor man, this person needs to declare bankruptcy and look to the God of our salvation. That's exactly where David went. It is birthed when we taste and see that God is good, and it matures when we seek the Lord. Look at this in verse 12. Jump down to verse 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves lengths of days that he may see good? He's going to now explain and talk about what a God-fearing life looks like. For somebody who returns back to where they need to be rather than wandering out where he had been. Verse 13. Here's the first characteristic of a God-fearing life. So now keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. We know in Scripture that the power of life and death is in the tongue. That what we speak out comes from the heart and it goes out and it accomplishes a purpose. It either produces life or it produces death. If you were to stand in the presence of a king in that day, if you had gone before King Saul, you would never have spoken deceitfully to the king. You never would have made a request that was not pure and holy, if you will, or honorable. You're in the presence of the king. And what David is saying is God should get more awe and more reverence than any earthly king. That as we approach him, we should approach him in the integrity of who we are and even what comes out of our life, starting with our 
tongue, what comes from our lips. Now, I would tell you that your parents and your grandparents, when they spoke, they had communication with their lips and their words. They were actual conversations with people in the room face to face, and they talked to each other. It was called conversations. Today, the words of our lips show up in our text, in our post, in our digital footprint. And in all of those, that's a reflection of you, the person, and you, your heart. Be careful what you speak from your life. Don't speak evil things and don't speak evil of others. Don't be deceitful, but walk in truth and speak the truth. That's a reflection of a God-fearing life. The second characteristic is found in verse 14. Look at it. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David experienced the evil of Saul. He experienced a man who was fighting against God and was fighting against David. He was at war with the king of Israel. And as David reflected over all of that, he said, Listen, I could speak evil of Saul all my life. I could give case, proof, and point, but I won't speak evil. I won't act evil. I'll trust God. I'll seek him as my refuge. And I will stay in the integrity of that relationship above all others. Depart from evil do good. Make a difference with your life and with your story. Seek peace, not war. Pursue that peace. There are a lot of people that need to seek peace with God, but there are those who have peace with God like David, but don't have the peace of God. When he was hiding in Gath, when he would hide in the caves, it was a season where God had to return his heart back to experiencing the peace of God. He had peace with God. He just didn't have the peace of God. Why? because he was leaning on his own understanding, because he was wrestling with fear in his life, and there was a war taking place in him. But more importantly, he was fighting against a guy who had a war going on in his own soul. Listen to what it says about Saul and why God removed him from the throne. I'll put it on the screen, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. It says this about King Saul, the first king of Israel. The one that won all the popular votes. The one that all of Israel said, we want him to rule over us. We choose Saul. Here's what it says about Saul. He died. Why? For his trespass, which he committed against the Lord. Because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it. And he did not inquire of the Lord. David, like Saul, also found himself leaning on his own understanding. King Saul did the same thing. But King Saul didn't repent, and King Saul didn't turn back to the Lord. He, as a matter of fact, he turned to a medium, a sorcerer, witchcraft. Why not turn back to God? Because he was done with God. He was king of Israel. He didn't need God anymore. He had everything he needed, a throne, a palace. He had all the material wealth he could ever have, all the power he ever thought he would need. He no longer needed God, and that's the worst place you could be. David, even a man after his own heart, thought, man, I can figure this out. I can run. I can come up with this scheme. I can do this. I can do that. And he had to be reminded that only the Lord can be our shepherd. Psalm 33, verse 8, just a chapter before Psalm 33, verse 8, says, let all the earth fear the Lord. There it is again. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
David had lost the awe of God. King Saul had lost the awe of God. Have you lost the awe of God? You say, what is the awe of God? That's the same question I was wrestling with, quite frankly, as I was struggling through this passage and digging in and, and, and being familiar with the concept of the awe of God. But what is the awe of God? What does it mean that the whole world should stand in awe of him? As I was working through it, the Lord put on my heart to call a dear friend of mine by the name of Walker Moore. Some of you know Walker, and some of you may be familiar with his ministry. Walker was a youth pastor at First Baptist Tulsa for years. Out of that, he would end up launching a worldwide mission-sending ministry called Awe Star Ministries, A-W-E-S-T-A-R. He took teenagers every year, and they went all around the world sharing the gospel wherever God would open doors. Uh, Walker became a hero in my life. He was a member of my church in Tulsa years ago, and we became dear friends. And, and I just felt impressed to call him this week and ask him, Walker, why did you name your ministry All-Star? He said, it's because of the awe of God. I said, that's what I'm preaching on this week, and I've been wrestling with it. Would you share with me what God's been teaching you and what God has taught you about the awe of God? He said, Bill, there's nothing more I like to talk about than what God taught me over the years. And he began to explain. He gave me some great illustrations. Matter of fact, before we get into Walker's testimony, I want you to see the awe of God birthed in his church. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 43, a passage we've looked at a lot this year as we've talked about going one-on-one -on -one with God and who your one is. Sean preached on Acts chapter 2 through the summer months or, or right towards the end of last year on our Wednesday nights, and we dug into this passage, but return back to verse 43. Not only does Psalm 33, 8 speak of the awe of God, but look at Psalm, I mean, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 43. For it says, as the church was now birthed, Peter has preached that first sermon, thousands were saved, baptized like we saw today, and gathered together, and look at what it says. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Everyone. Not just the deacons, not just the kids who've been at Falls Creek, everyone, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, all of them were feeling a sense of awe. What happened to those days? Why did the New Testament church birth have that kind of reality, but so much different from the church in America today? Because we've lost our sense of awe. So what is that? What is the awe of God? Well, I was talking with Walker, and he said, Bill, when I was first launching that ministry, God taught me a powerful lesson through a, guy through a guy named Charles. Charles was a kid in his youth group, but he wasn't really in his youth group because Charles had some special needs mentally and emotionally. He was a big guy. Walker said he was bigger than me, and yet he had the, the uh, mentality of less than a first grader. He was underdeveloped and mentally challenged. A great kid, big and huge and full of life, but, but struggling emotionally. And so he didn't get to participate in a lot of the things that the youth were doing. Well, one summer, uh, back then, this is how you did youth ministry. You had pizza blasts and you went to Six Flags. That was youth ministry back in those days. And so he put together his Six Flags trip for the summer. And he got really convicted when he saw Charles at the church and thought, you know, he's never been to Six Flags. So he called his parents and he said, I'd love to take Charles with us this year and I'll make this commitment to you. I'll be his personal guide. I'll go everywhere he goes. I'll take him on every ride he wants to ride and I'll make sure he stays safe and has the best trip of his summer. 
Well, his parents were excited, and so they, they let him go to, to Six Flags, and they got all the way down there to Dallas, spent the night, got up early the next morning, made their way to the gates of Six Flags, the buses parked, everybody unloaded and went running into the, the, the gates of the Six Flags over Texas, except for Charles. Charles was sitting in the back of the bus, kind of overstimulated, overwhelmed, didn't know what to do, was just kind of frozen in his seat. And Walker said, come on, man, let's go do Six Flags. Now, Walker already had figured out what they were going to do. If you've ever been down there, it may have been a while for some of you, but if you ever go through the front gates, if you go right over to the right, you remember what's over there? It's called the Kitty Park. Walker thought, that's where I'm going to take him. That's where it'll be safe. I'll take him on all the rides. We'll do the things that'll be great for Charles. And they loaded up and they started doing some of the rides. And one of the first rides they took was a saucer ride that goes into a cave and you kind of just float around and it's just a good way to break in Charles. He said, we loaded in. We were the two biggest guys in the whole park. We're sitting together in this little ride and we get on a little saucer and we start riding down the river. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, Charles starts wailing and screaming. I want to go out. I don't want to be here. All the people are looking at this adult man hanging out with a kid on a saucer in the canal. He said, it was the worst, most embarrassing moment of, of my life. And people are wondering, am I hurting this kid? Have I kidnapped this kid? What's going on? He's trying to get Charles to be quiet. Charles, what's wrong? Charles, what's wrong? Isn't this fun? Isn't this cool? You're at Six Flags. He goes, I don't want to be here. He goes, what's the problem? What do you want to do? He says, I want to ride the Texas cliffhanger. It had just been built. It had been all over the TV. And Charles was determined to go ride the Texas cliffhanger. Now, I don't know if you remember the cliffhanger. They demolished it eventually. It was a ride from Satan. <laughs> I don't know who developed it other than Satan. It's all you can post it to. Just like we talked about those lima beans. They should have named the ride lima beans. Texas cliffhanger. You get in another metal cage, just big enough for two people. They belt you in, they strap you in, they pray over you, and then you start rising one click at a time, 10 stories high, straight up the cliffhanger. When you get to the very top of the 10th floor area, the, the 10th story, it begins to slowly start moving you out, three clicks, they pull a pin, and you go straight down, simulating an elevator crash. As if we all have wanted to know, what would that feel like? <laughs> he said, there we were. He said, I couldn't disappoint Charles. We load it up and we go up and it's click, 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 click. So we started to move over. And I knew that three clicks later, I knew what was about to happen. I heard the third click. The pin was pulled. And everything changed the rest of my life. He said, as they began to fall, he said, I screamed like a little junior high girl. Now, if you're a junior high girl, no problem if you're a junior high girl. If you're a grown man, it's a little embarrassing. He's screaming and he's crying. He's confessing every sin he's ever committed on the planet. He's crawling and he thinks it's going to be the end of his world. And here's Charles. All the way down. Kind of like that little pig in the progressive insurance commercial. <laughs> Charles, living it up. And he said, Bill, when I got to the bottom, it's, it's as if God spoke in my life and said, that's what the fear of the Lord is. It's being in that place where it's beyond your control. You're halfway scared to death because you can't control it. You, you don't know what's next. You don't know where. And that's where God loves to take us. 
He said, but it's also that moment where it's the thrill of your life. And the problem is too many of us are willing to just hang out and kiddie land Christianity. We're never experiencing the fear of the Lord, walking with him and letting God take us where he wants to lead us and doing great and mighty things that we know not of. And I know it can be scary. I know it's, it, it, but man, can I tell you this? It is powerfully amazing when you can live in that moment just like Charles. He said, Bill, I'll never forget as long as I live. And he said, from that moment on, I started praying, God, may I live with that kind of awe towards you. Not scared to death of you. Not scared that God's going to take my life. But like Charles, being in that exhilaration and being in that moment and just going, whee! As I experience the power of God and the person of God for who he is. David had to return back to that. Can I say this? The church in America needs to return to the awe of God. This pastor, this person, I need to return to the awe of God. How do you get there? That was my next question to Walker. I said, Walker, that's cool. That'll great. That'll preach. I'm going to tell the story. And man, what a great picture of the awe of God. But how do you get back there if you're not there now? Remember we were in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, when they, everyone was sensing the awe of God? Back up a verse. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. He said, Bill, there's four things. I call them the awe factors. Four things that were present then that caused them to have a sense of awe. And if you see these four things, you'll be familiar with all four, but you'll also see that we have not been living. Verse 42, take a look at it. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 43, and they all felt a sense of all. Four things, if you're taking notes, just real quick, it in a four-point sermon, just four things, write them down real quick, watch this. The very first thing that was present there is every single day they were devoting themselves to the Word of God. They were in the Word, and the Word of God was in them every single day. You only have to put up with me once a week at best if you're a real good church-going folk. They were there every single day, daily, walking with God and abiding in His Word. Walker said, when I went on a trip to Romania... I uh, got to visit in the home of one of the young couples who were great leaders of this Romanian church. And when I walked in, they wanted to make me dinner. If you've ever been over in Eastern Europe and other places, you know it's a big deal when they have a guest from America in their home and they want to serve you and they want to provide a, a beautiful meal from their own uh, dietary preferences. As he walked into that house, they took him in a small little living room. They said, here, make yourself at home. Our home is your home. They disappeared to the kitchen to prepare the meal, and Walker, being the unique, kind of often off-the-cuff, outside-the-box guy that he was, he said, well, they said, this is my home. I looked around the living room, and I said, well, if this is my home, I wouldn't put the couch right there. Matter of fact, I don't like anything about how they got there. And so he rearranged all the furniture in the living room. They had finished cooking lunch. They come walking in. I'm like, what are you doing? He said, well, you said this is your home's my home, and that's not where I'd put the couch, and this is where I would put it. And so I just made myself at home. Listen to what they said. Well, we weren't, we, we weren't that serious. We really didn't mean for you to really make yourself at home. And he said, Bill, I realize that I've done the same with God often. God, forgive me of my sins. Lord, come into my heart. God, save me. I want, I want to be the temple of your Holy Spirit. I invite you in. My home is your home. 
And when God invades, he sees that the furniture needs to be rearranged. The way we think, the things that we're engaged in, and God wants to clean up the house, and yet we say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I kind of like it how I got it. I'm fine like it is, and don't mess with that or don't touch that, Lord. And when you're in the Word and the Word is in you, He cleans house and He rearranges our thoughts, our desires, and our choices. And He returns the awe that comes from living in His Word. Number one, they were devoted to the teaching of His Word. Number two, it says that they also experienced great fellowship. It says nothing about a casserole. It says nothing about gathering at a church building, although they were gathered together. This fellowship is spoken of, write it down, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. For John, the beloved disciple who would understand the awe of God, the one who was closer to Jesus than maybe any of the disciples, the beloved one, said this, what we have seen and what we have heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. There's that corporate fellowship, but watch this. And indeed, that we might have fellowship, that fellowship that is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Just because we gather around a table or gather up at church and call it a fellowship doesn't make it a fellowship. John said, it's a fellowship that we have with God the Father, God the Son. It comes out of relating to him, not just on Sunday mornings, but it's a daily experience. Being in his word daily, being in his presence, walking with his person, connecting with the person of God, and returning the joy of that relationship. Third thing, they broke bread. Well, what was the issue of breaking bread? That really is better pictured as worship. For us, worship is a music piece that happens, and and that is worship. We've been able to experience great worship today. The songs that our worship team led us with was a powerful way of us connecting, clearing out our minds and our hearts, and just focusing on God and God alone. And that is an act of worship. But worship is bigger than what can happen within a building right here on the corner of 112th and Rockwell. Worship is something that happens as you are in the Word, as you're in fellowship with Him, And you just connect in that relationship. You see, worship has been defined. This is Walker's definition. You've heard it before. Worship is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is when you're at a place of worship. But we as worshipers who know God, have been forgiven of our sins, love the Lord, we have Jesus plus something else. We got Jesus and we got our ticket to heaven, but... But Jesus, if I just had a better job. Jesus, if I just had a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Jesus, if I just had a cool car. Lord, Jesus, if if I can you imagine what David was thinking when Saul was trying to take his life? Lord, if you would just get rid of Saul and let me be the king you called me to be, everything would be so much better. Really? That's Jesus plus something else. And if you got Jesus plus something else, you're in a bad place. You lose the awe of God because you actually think there's something else that needs to be added into your life, i.e. Adam and Eve that needed a piece of fruit, i.e. somebody else who needed something that was desirable to their eye or their heart. Or if I just had a different church, if I just had a different marriage, if I just had a different school, if I just had more talent, if I just had more money, if I just... Jesus plus something else robs you of the awe of God. The fourth thing, very quickly, was prayer. 
And they were people of prayer. Daily walking with God, talking to God, God speaking into their life, and everyone had a sense of awe. But in the church in America today, there's no wonder we don't have that holy awe. We barely give God one hour a week, daily. That's all they had, and that's all they needed. Jesus plus nothing, plus nothing else. The problem for us in America is we're way too blessed. We have so much else. We have so many other distractions, so many other things that we love and we pursue and that we eat from rather than tasting that God is good and letting that be enough. We close with this, and we are closing. And all God's people said, amen. Verse 15, here we go. So what happens when the awe of God returns? What happens when he's your all and all? The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. David had become proud in his heart. David had become large in ego and testimony. And God had to humble him, and God had to remind him, I'm God and you're not. And when you come to that place of brokenness, when you come to that point of being crushed in spirit, when everything has been ripped away, that is a beautiful moment to return to the awe of God. As verse 19 says, Lauchus, listen, it's going to be hard for some of the younger ones to understand, but many are the afflictions of the righteous. There will be a lot of tough times, a lot of bad things, a lot of rough situations, but the, the Lord delivers us out of them all. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David had to learn that lesson. He has sought to teach you that lesson through this psalm. The question is, did you have ears to hear and a heart to receive? Could we make it our prayer that today every one of us would pursue the awe of God? That we would discover what it means to truly fear the Lord. To be in that moment like Charles where, wee versus woe is me. You only find it in abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you. Let's pray about it with every head bowed, every eye closed. I dare you on the way home when your dad or your mom in looking, they're about to make a left turn, you yell like Charles. Give them a wee. But I dare you more than that, as you live out your life, live in the awe of God. Live at that point of holy fear and holy awe. Live in that moment of being outside of anything you can do and experiencing all God can do. And you will find the greatest ride of your life. There may be somebody here today and you find that you're wanting you find that there's an emptiness in your life. You say, how do you know that? Because that was me for so long. I had everything the world could throw at me. I had everything my parents could provide for me. I had more than enough, more than most of the kids in my neighborhood or in my school, but I was still wanting. Because nothing on this earth can fill that God-shaped void that's in our hearts. That part of us that is dead spiritually because of sin, but can be born again a second time. You say, what are you talking about? Jesus had to explain to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, 
You don't need more religion. You don't need to become a better teacher of the Jews. You don't need more good to outweigh your bad. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again, a second birth. Everyone in this room has had a first birth. The question is, have you had a second birth? Your first birth required a father and a mother. The second birth requires a heavenly father. You say, how do I experience a second birth? That was Nicodemus's question. Jesus said, you must be born of the Spirit. If you've never been born of the Spirit, that means if you've never come to a place in your life spiritually where you've declared like David, poor me, I'm bankrupt spiritually. Lord, there's nothing good in me. And Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. God, save me. That's never happened in your life. Today, you could be born a second time. Today, you could have salvation. Today, you could have a new life in Christ. Call on the name of the Lord. The Bible says, whoever will call on his name, they shall be saved. You say, what do I, how does that happen? I had to do it in front of a whole coliseum of people in my hometown. And that night, I cried out with the preacher. I said, dear Lord, I'm a sinner. Just pray that right now. If that's you, pray it. If you're online, pray it wherever you are and wherever you're listening in. Lord, I'm a sinner. God, forgive me of my sin. I open the door of my heart, and I invite you in. Lord, you take over. My home is your home. The Bible says when you pray that, the Lord will come in, and he will birth you spiritually. It's the greatest moment you'll ever experience. And if that's your moment, we want you to share that today. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. So we'll have ministers here at the front. You can come to one of them and say, man, today I nailed it down. I gave Christ my life. We want to celebrate with you like we did in the first service with some others. Maybe you have another decision you need to make for Christ. Maybe you've been looking for a church family during this whole COVID craziness, and maybe the Lord's led you to PCBC. We'd love to receive you as we receive members. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've accepted Christ, but you haven't taken that first step of obedience like you saw this morning. You ought to come and say, I need to take that step. I want to line up my baptism. As Hunter said, baptism doesn't save you, but because you have been saved, it's the first step of obedience. You ought to do that. If you need somebody to pray with you, we'll pray with you. But right now, it's up to you. How do you respond? What's your next step? David said, I came to the Lord. I came back to him. I found my refuge in him. I wonder how many people need to do that today. Lord, in these next few moments, may we come running back to you. God, may you restore the awe. And may every one of us May every one of us experience the awe, the reverence, and the fear of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake.